and I'm here with uh, Michael McPherson, uh, Veterans for Peace 92 radio show, which is being broad- broadcast on KODX 96.9. And with us today is Matthew Ho, a journalist and author and a veteran himself, talk about Afghanistan and its, and its history. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, and, and before we get to Matthew, I just wanted to... Um, acknowledged that October 22nd passed um, a few days ago. And so October 22nd is the, the day of the October 22nd coalition to stop police brutality, repression, and the criminalization of a generation. Uh, that's a, a coalition that was put together, I don't know, 20 plus years ago. I met my uh, wife um, at a event that happened October 22nd in 1997. Uh, so that's how long that this coalition's um, been working to end police brutality. And I just felt like it's something that a lot of people don't even really know about, that this coalition exists and it's across the country. So next year, uh, if you're hearing about this and you have concerns about police brutality, you might want to put on an October 22nd event. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to acknowledge that. Well. Thanks, Mike. It's actually in Seattle anyway. That's a, a, an important. Uh, that's not. That's an important sort of uh, issue. It's, it's, a, it's particularly here in Seattle. Yeah. They they estimate that at least eleven people from the Seattle Police Department were involved in the riots, the assault on the Capitol. Several of them may have been fired and that sort of thing. But police accountability is and uh, police having police controlled by civilians. Right is a critical issue and, and uh, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have any accountability until that dynamic is really fully enforced. That's right. That's right. All right. So let's go ahead and, and uh, get to our interview with Matthew. Today is Matt Ho. Um, he's a, some people say former Marine, but I'm going to say a, a veteran Marine. <laughs> I've been told by many Marines, once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. So, uh, and Matt uh, served in Afghanistan. And our show today is to talk about uh, what's happening in Afghanistan. So thank you, Matt, for coming on to the show. Hey, thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, regarding the Marine, I, I can't do anywhere near the number of pull-ups I used to do, so I'm not sure about, about that statement. So I hear that. I know, me either. So I got you. Um, so why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your, your, you know, a little bit about your background and your relationship to Afghanistan? Yeah, I, uh, I joined the Marine Corps after college, uh, became an officer in the Marine Corps in January of 1998, and... Um, I was in the Iraq war uh, twice, once as a Department of Defense civilian on a State Department team uh, doing reconstruction and governance work, uh, and then the second time as a uh, a Marine Corps company commander. Uh, So I had uh, 153 Marines and sailors with me in Iraq. uh, You know, from 2006 to 2007. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I 
become involved with Afghanistan in 2009, I received an appointment into the State Department. I had been working with the State Department not, it, back in D.C. as well as, you know, in Iraq. And um, so I have received this appointment and I get to uh, Afghanistan in April of 2009. Um, and we, very quickly, I realized that there is no fundamental difference in the wars, that the wars are, are more or less the same. Um, they are uh, futile, they're counterproductive, they are immoral, they are illegal. Um, and uh, also too, on a personal level, I am uh, intellectually and morally broken from my participation in the Iraq war. Um, so after five months of being in Afghanistan, uh, and if people recall in 2009, uh, you know, when Barack Obama comes into office in January 2009, there's about 60,000 total U.S. NATO, uh, U.S. and NATO troops and contractors. Um, when he comes into office, the war escalates. Uh, and so uh, I resigned in protest five months after uh, my start there in Afghanistan uh, in protest of the escalation of that war. Um, you know, by, as I said, Barack Obama comes in January 2009, by April or May of 2010, it goes from 60,000 U.S. and NATO troops, NATO troops and contractors to 250,000 U.S. and NATO troops and contractors. So it's a mass escalation. Yeah. So I was in protest in September of 2009 over that escalation. And um, yeah, here we are now, um, 12 years later. Um, you know, I couldn't possibly believe that the war would continue. But if I had, I think, had a, a, a better understanding of American history in the sense of the continuity of it, how the U.S. empire continues to march in a certain manner. Yeah, I probably should not. I, I probably would not have been surprised. But, you know, that's one of the things I've learned over this last decade is even all the history I read before. And I was my high school uh, history award winner, you know, and all the, uh, you know, I just didn't get that um, understanding, the connecting the dots, that the continuous line that runs through American history right. that puts us into Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, this is not necessarily directly related to that experience. It's just a general experience. I think that it's one thing to know something intellectually, and it's another thing to actually live it. And um, what I'm learning as I get older, being 56 now, is that I I'm learning the value of actually experiencing things. Um, so similar to yourself, I would not have imagined that tw 20 years would pass from when we invaded Afghanistan. You know, that's just not something. And I know I knew the history similar to yourself. Right. And we were still in Iraq um, in one shape, form or fashion. Um, but yet still it was like this. I mean, who would have thought 20 years and here it is. And so then you you live it and you connect it back to the things, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is not as surprising. I should have known this could happen. You yeah, know. I think I think we are reluctant to believe our generation or to understand our generation um, will act like previous generations. Yeah. And also, I think are often mistaken in thinking that we um, are we are we are over we are too confident in our own free will. Yeah. Uh, we don't understand 
um, all the uh, assemblage of history that comes before us right. that while it doesn't preordain us, right. it certainly limits uh, how we can operate and we can act. And that's one of the things I talk about uh, with these wars, this idea that you're going to somehow go into these wars, you're going to go into the military, you're going you're to somehow be a moral actor, even in a, 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 a massive immoral uh, episode. Uh, you know, and I, I think, you know, Veterans for Peace radio hour, you know, I mean, I think many, many folks you've had on and many people listening who are veterans certainly understand that, that yeah. no matter what your intentions are, no matter uh, who you think you are, what you believe in yourself, uh, you will become an agent of that immorality. Uh, you can't go to war and take part in it and be wearing a white hat. It's yeah. just not going to work. It's just not going to happen no matter no matter what you believe in yourself. And uh, certainly I went into these wars, um, uh, again, understanding history, understanding, you know, but but not putting um, one, I think, again, like I just said, divorcing our generation from the past, thinking yeah. that somehow it would be different, believing yeah. the leaders who said it would be different. I mean, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I recall very clearly in the late 90s, we still had, uh, you know, senior officers in the Marine Corps and probably some sergeant majors who have been involved in, in who have been in um, uh, uh, Vietnam. And these men, almost, they're all men, yeah. um, spoke uh, how we will never do that again. We will never do that type of thing again. We will never betray, you know, the American people. We will never betray the Marines. We will never betray the institution by going along with a war like that. I mean, I heard how many. Mm. Uh, you know, colonels and generals and sergeant majors say that in 98, 99, 2000, and then 2001 comes, you know, and 2002 comes and 2003, we're in Iraq and there are, everyone is saluting and going along with it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, so there's that. And then there's the experience, you know, I mean, Michael, you and I can go to West Point right now or to the, to the Naval Academy, or we can go talk to ROTC cadets someplace until we're blue in their face and these kids will get it. They will understand what they're saying. But just like you said, you, they'll have to go experience it for themselves. There's something about our human nature that requires that. And that's why it's so important that we don't put the honest of response, the honest on those young men and women. Yes. It come from uh, our elected leaders. We need to make these decisions. We right. make we must avoid war, not prosecute war, not jump into war, uh, because the young men and women are going to do whatever is asked of them. That's in their nature. Yeah. And they have to experience it themselves. I mean, right. this is the whole reality of why we have veterans for peace. Yeah. I mean, we've got some guys who are drafted, you know, right. but most of us now um, are people That's who right. volunteered. Yeah. And I don't have not met anyone who's volunteered who did it for reasons that you would consider ignoble. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, many of us volunteer for economic reasons, other, you know, but all of us volunteer because we think we're going to be making a difference or yeah. doing something. And then that yeah, just smacks us in the face. And that's a, we get a whole conversation of how that drives veteran suicide. You know? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And uh, I want to move out on, on, but I just want to point out to listeners that this idea of knowing something but needing to live it to more fully understand it, I think is the same for many things. Um, like right now in our country with all the rise of hate and the continuation of racism, there's so many things that when I was younger, I would not have imagined would still be going on. 
And yet here I am 30, 40 years later, and the same things are happening. And it's, it's such a disappointment. I'm like heartbroken um, that my country, when it comes to war, when it comes to hate, um, I just thought we'd be further along. But why did I think that? And you, I think, explained it well. We, Me thinking, okay, we're going to do it this time. You know, not meaning that we shouldn't continue to push, none of that. But um, now I think I'm more realistic as to what the fight is really about and the things that we need to do in order to make the change, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, if you I, want to comment I, on that, please. I do, because I, I feel that as well. Um, you know, I'm 48 years old. And so I was in college when Rodney King, uh, when the Rodney King beating, uh, you know, when, yeah. when happened in the trial and then the riots afterward and everything. You do, you think that you're going to get past that. And cell phone cameras and video have told us completely opposite. I think that's what for, for, for people in the white community, I, you know, folks in the black community, you live this every day for those yeah. of us in the white community that we don't. And we see this. And I think after, you know, last summer when you had the largest uh, uh, mass movement in American history, I mean, how many millions of people took the street? Right. 14,000 people arrested or something like that, yeah, you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, Matt, I mean, and there's been a whole other, a whole other thing we could talk about the politics of it now, what really has come from that, you know, and it, as well as to what really has come from these wars and all the other uh, forms of violence that our government and our society perpetuates and how the system is, continues, continues to march on. Right. But, you know, I mean, I mean, for so many, I, I think people in the white community, to seeing this constantly on our uh, on YouTube now or on the news or whatever the the the, the brutality the 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 oppression um, I, I think the shock of that uh, and then the the just the the overwhelming amount of times it happens right um, you know I, I I think that has really affected a great Ameri great many white Americans in a way that. Um, we, because we, I think many of us were, we get back to the origins of the term woke, right? Which is yeah. so, which is now it, it's gotten to the point where it's being used ironically and it's, you know, it's a, yeah. almost a slander to use it now or whatever, but yeah, it yeah. gets to that, gets to that original idea of it though, yeah. of you're awake, you're realizing what's happening, right. you know, and that's got a lot to do with the camera, with the, with the video cameras we have on our cell phones, that this right. is how, this is how our, our black brothers and sisters live every right. day. Right. This is how they live. Um, and it is. So it is. It, it, this is this awakening that occurs that has to happen again by experience. Right. Again, by experience, by seeing it. And, right. and, and oh, you know, OK, I'm going to change now. I'm going right. to do something differently now because this experience is personal experience I have. And even, even though even if it's something it's just this watching a video is moving me to action. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Great. Um, so one of the things I hope we can get to is an update at, to the extent that you have one of, of what you see happening in, in Afghanistan. Um, also want to talk a little bit about um, what people can do, um, you know, right now to, to support the people of Afghanistan. But I just want the listeners to be clear. And I think from hearing all the things you've said right now, the answer is pretty apparent, but um, what did you think about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? 
Well, it was the right thing to do. It was, uh, you know, should have taken place um, at any point after October 7th, 2001, when we first attacked, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. it, in that sense, uh, but Biden did the right thing. I think the, um, the manufactured hysteria over the evacuation yeah. um, is a, a really clear indicator of how powerfully aligned uh, media interests are with the defense industry's interests, with the military's interests, with, you know, um, the, the, uh, look, you, you, you know, this, this was, this is what defeat looks like. You know, this is the consequence of choosing military victory in Afghanistan for two decades up until the second half of the Trump administration, the policy in the, of the United States in Afghanistan was to win militarily. The, uh, the preconditions that existed for eight, for 17, 18 years in Afghanistan for the United States to talk with the Taliban were effectively to demand the Taliban surrender. Uh, uh, Not until September of 2018, when Trump orders Zalmay Khalilzad to talk to the Taliban uh, for reasons got to do with Trump's own ego and his interest in re-election and his supposed campaign promises rather than anything else. But uh, he does that. And you see uh, how quickly the Taliban respond to that, how quickly a deal is put in place. You know, what happens, though, is that after the deal exists between the Americans and the uh, Taliban in February 2020, um, nothing further really happens. And that's a that's a a, 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 that leads to uh, this collapse that we see in Afghanistan in the summer of, of, of this year, yeah. uh, you know, where, where the house of cards that the United States had built this, this uh, corrupt patronage network that was basically the government, government, as soon as the money seems to stop coming, or as soon as it seems like there is uh, a better wagon to be hitched to, um, the government collapses. Uh, and it was a house of cards. Right. So, um, I mean, I, I don't think anyone was expecting the collapse to be that quick. The Taliban themselves weren't expecting it. I mean, right. the Taliban were shocked by it, how quickly their operation proved successful. Right. Uh, and they were they were expecting that operation to last for many months, if not a year or two, from what I understand. Um, and so they were as shocked as we were when the government collapsed. But I think go back and we look at what that government was, we should not be surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, it truly was a, a house of cards. I mean, right. it was completely just based upon we had assembled in Afghanistan for two decades, a, a government of warlords and drug lords. Um, so as soon as uh, where it was a kleptocracy, uh, you know, the, the, it was a government of thieves uh, and it was a patronage network where everybody had to pay uh, to have their place and had to pay up. Uh, mm-hmm. And in terms mm-hmm. of it, then they would receive their spoils which was the foreign assistance, the American and the European and the Japanese money that was coming in. You know, something like 90% of Afghans government revenues uh, came from outside, you know, outside of Afghanistan. Um, So it it was a government propped up by foreign money and the government, that's how people uh, got rich, survived, were powerful. So as soon as that money even hinted at being interrupted, you saw the collapse. Right. And as the Taliban operation began and as they something that they had planned for obviously years in advance, as they rolled into these different provincial capitals and offered these people a choice, these Afghan government officials a choice and Afghan army commanders a choice, they very quickly sided with the Taliban. 
Um, and what we see now, of course, is Afghanistan was already in an economic catastrophe uh, a year a year ago. So in 2020, Ashraf Ghani, the former president of Afghanistan, said that 90% of Afghanistan's people live below the poverty line, mm. right? Which is which is about a buck 75 a day or something like that. Uh, 90%. So it was already, you know, before the Taliban took over, Afghanistan was the second most food insecure country in the world. Wow. Before the Taliban took over, right. you know, what I mean? so it already was in economic collapse. It had already collapsed. It was already the people were already living subsistently, right? This, this where they were, the, the destitution was 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 uh, uh, covered the entire population. And now the Taliban have taken over, and that foreign money is no longer coming in. Well, there is no way to pay people, their salaries, uh, because so many NGOs pulled out. Um, and I think there's a reason why those NGOs pulled out, because those NGOs have been working with the Taliban before, because the Taliban controlled large parts of the country. Right. And these NGOs worked with them before. But then when they take over, and it, it, it's got to do with the fact that so many of these NGOs are corrupt in the sense that their financing comes so often from um, the U.S. government and European governments. Yeah. So a lot of these 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 uh, large uh, corporate type NGOs that do massive relief programs are funded by the U.S. government and the European governments. And so when those nations lose the war, these NGOs retreat with them. Even right. though there's everything we know, there's no reason for. Even though again they had been working with the Taliban. In the last 20 years in areas that Taliban had control, there was, you know, and so the, the, the Afghanistan is in a dire position right now. Winter is coming. Um, they cannot feed themselves. They have no money. I mean, the reasons why they can't feed mm -hmm. themselves are, are legion and it's got to do with it. But but the, the it all stems from the fact that Afghanistan has been at war for over 40 years right. and everything has been destroyed. Everything yeah. has been destroyed. And so they cannot... They can, there's no electricity, there's no road network, there's there's no there's no industry besides the drug industry, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with that because the Taliban are claiming that they will um, once yeah, again, no. yeah, will once again destroy the drug industry, yeah, uh, uh, and we'll see. And if they do, there goes uh, that 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 is a, a huge that is literally the only industry in Afghanistan. I mean, you've got other things, you've got gems and timbers and and some other some 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 agriculture, but nothing on the scale that provides any serious amount of cash into yeah. the country. So Afghanistan is in a really desperate place. Um, the violence uh, is uh, uh, quite severe now, particularly in the east uh, between the Taliban and the Islamic State. And there's all kinds of uh, insidious, nefarious uh, actions occurring. Um, of course, it's, it's Afghanistan has, has for centuries been the center of the great game. Uh, I mean, possibly the most tragic thing of all of this, the, the, the 40 plus years of war in Afghanistan, is that it's got almost nothing to do with the Afghan people themselves. Right. It's all about outside nations meddling in Afghanistan, trying to use Afghanistan for the purposes, using it as a proxy war. And so as we see this fighting between the Taliban and the Islamic State, just reading one commenter who describing it very clearly with a lot of good points uh, how similar it is in many ways to the fighting that occurred in Syria, 
with various nations supporting groups like the Islamic State and Al Qaeda to include yeah. the United States, right. you know, trying to, you know, and so that's the concern is that this violence, whereas the Islamic State up until this year was a group with maybe a couple thousand members that could carry out some pretty horrific bombings, but they were not going to be uh, any type of existential threat right. to the government, now maybe has the foreign backing uh, to actually become that type of existential threat. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that there's so many places where people are manipulated um, by outside powers. I mean, we have something similar going on, I think, in um, Israel-Palestine, where you have, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians, or I should say the Jewish Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, have a real conflict. But there's all, the, all these outside interests that are influencing it and supporting ones, well, the Israelis specifically. So it's hard for the two to really figure out what how to deal with it themselves because there's all these other people involved in it. So similarly, I think in Afghanistan, because you got Pakistan, uh, you got um, India. Um, I'm trying to think of the other nations that uh, have what they see as interest there. So the people of Afghanistan can't really, I mean, for a while, the United States, um, can't really figure out their problems, I guess you could say, their issues. And of course, Russia invading, as you said, 40 years ago. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I don't think people realize. When you said the great game, that's what I wanted to ask you. Could you just tell the audience a little bit about what that is? The great game was the uh, name applied to... Uh, mostly uh, 19th century um, adventurism by European powers, most especially the British uh, in, Af in Central Asia. Um, the idea that the British were going to expand their empire out of India into parts of Central Asia that were not controlled by Tsarist Russia or were cont contested by Tsarist Russia. Uh, you know, uh, this, you know, I think is a um, a rivalry of great powers for uh, uh, more land, a, 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 a real life version of the game Risk, where mm -hmm. men in parlors in London were looking at maps and saying, you know, this is the extent of the British Empire now. And, and that they, they had those maps. I mean, I just saw one the other day of of the British, the world and the British empire and the world is, is on the map, you know, it's a map of the world and the parts of the British empire are shaded, right? To show the extent of the British empire. So the idea being is that you always want to extend the empire. And if you are a prime minister, you know, or you're the party in power in, in Britain, um, you want to extend it. You never want to, of course, lose any. And, right. and that holds over, that carries over for the American empire. You know, I mean, uh, most especially uh, George Kennan, uh, who uh, is a famed American diplomat. He was the author of the containment strategy against the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, and he turns by the time uh, the 70s, 80s comes around, Kennan has turned against the empire. Um, but, uh, you know, Kennan writes a, 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 a cable, a memo, 
um, for the president of the United States, for Harry Truman, after the Second World War. And this memo says to me, I'll paraphrase it, the United States controls more than half the world's wealth with less than 5% of the world's population. And it will be the primary responsibility of all future presidents to ensure that inequality remains, hmm. right? I mean, so that, that's the, the purpose of, uh, of, 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 of the administration of an empire is to maintain that inequality, maintain that extraction of resources, uh, maintain that imbalance. I mean, if anyone ever looks at the amount of money the United States gives a year uh, in foreign assistance to uh, nations in the global south, south or the developing world, or you know, uh, and then looks at the amount of money that the United States, through its corporations, extracts from right. those nations, right. it is a massive indifference. And that is the purpose of, of the empire. So what you see then in Afghanistan, uh, getting back to the great game, yeah. and it's interesting because the British invade Afghanistan uh, three times from India. And at least in two of those times, uh, the reason was that we have to invade Afghanistan because Russia is planning to invade Afghanistan to then go on and invade India. So the British send these expeditions in mm -hmm. one of them. One of them famously ends with a massacre of all but one British soldier. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, what happens is that when the Cold War ends and historians get into the archives, you know, in the in the basement of the Kremlin or wherever. Yeah. Uh, what they find is that czarist Russia never had any yeah. plans on invading India. This was all just a phantom invented in, again, the parlors of London between the political parties. Who's gonna be tougher against the Russian bear? Who's gonna stand up against the Russians? You know what I mean? And, and if folks listening, I'm sure they 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 hear that today. Right. A little bit with Russia, but primarily with China now. Yeah. We stand up to China with you know and you know I mean this happens over and over again history repeats itself I mean yeah I'm reminded right now of the missile gap uh, that exists that you know Eisenhower is told that the Soviet Union has dozens and dozens of ICBMs and we have to build up our force and have an overwhelming amount to overwhelm theirs uh, and then what what do we find out years later and the army and navy knew and the, and the services all knew this they were just lying about it mm. Um, that at that time, the Soviet Union had four ICBMs, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is the famed missile gap, right? I mean, so again, oh this, 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 this adversary. And then, of course, the kind of, as we alluded to before, it's the people of other countries that pay the price because right. the proxy wars, the struggle for the for this land, for this empire to make the map of the world, you know, I, I guess the United States is is is, is blue, right? To make make more of the world blue than it yeah. was in the previous administration, or at least not lose any. I mean, that's right. kind of the crux right. of geopolitical thinking. Yeah. It, so it's madness. And but the people, uh, you know, the people uh are, are, are of these lands, whether it be uh, you know, Afghanistan or Vietnam or Iraq or Indonesia or Korea or, or where have you. I mean, right. we, we, we all day just let rattling off all the different nations that have suffered because of this. That's yeah. Right. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let me get Mike in here. Let me just say um, what you just said about 
uh, presidents not wanting to lose any of the global influence and really wanted to expand it to continue to build the empire. Even if they're not even thinking about it that way, you know, uh, this idea of American exceptionalism and we, yeah. the U.S. is the indispensable nation is part of that thinking, but it sounds better. You know, it's not like empire building. Um, I admire that. And, and again, he has reasons I don't necessarily admire, but I admire that President Biden decided to take the step that he did because I knew he was going to take catch hell, as you yeah. talked about the intersection of the different um, interests, the military interests, the people who want to continue to build the empire, et cetera, um, trying to make it look like this is a failure, this, you know, you lost Afghanistan and all that. Um, and now, you know, if you look at the news, they're talking about all the different dangers that are taking place with the rise of China, um, we, what's happening in Afghanistan, what Russia's doing, and as if Biden is this uh, weak person. And, and now I'm not trying to defend him, but I am looking at that he's ha he has taken a chance on how he will be looked at in history. Um, what if this all fails? What if there's one of the reasons these presidents didn't want to leave Afghanistan is what if, there, if there's another terrorist, domestic terrorist attack? I mean, there's all these things that are just out of his hands that he can't do anything about. And he could have easily have stayed, but instead he decided this is the best thing to do. Some of the reasoning is not the kind of reasoning you and I, the three of us would say, well, yeah, this is good reasons to leave. But at the end of the day, I feel that he put his legacy, his own, who he is as president on the line. And no president has been willing to do that. The only other one that kind of did that maybe was Nixon. You know, he because he left Vietnam, he didn't have to leave. But did it, I take that back? He did have to leave because the military was falling apart. Yeah, exactly. That's not exactly yeah. what was happening here, you know, yeah. with uh, the U.S. military in Afghanistan. So I don't know what Mike might feel totally different about that. But um, what what do you all think about this? Like I said, the possibility that this is all could have really destroyed his presidency. I mean, you know. While it was happening, there were Democrats talking about we need to find somebody else to run um, for president. I mean, there were people in his own party saying this stuff. It's like, wow. Well, the Democrats, too, when, when Trump cuts this deal with the Taliban in, in, in you know, 2020, uh, the Democrats uh, are chief among those in the Congress, especially in the House, who partner with Liz Cheney and other Republicans to block uh, a withdrawal from Afghanistan to, mm -hmm. to actually pass. They actually have a, a bill that states that no money will go towards uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan. Right. I mean, so when what you see was uh, Trump actually wanted the troops out before he left office in the fall of 2020, as American forces are getting down below 4000 or so. Uh, Trump says, can we get them out by the end of the year? Right. And the military says no. Um, and then Biden comes in and Biden, you know, and one of the things we should be looking at and it won't be looked at. But, you know, why was that? Again, I spoke about this briefly earlier from 20. You had 18 months between the Doha agreement in February 2020 and the Taliban victory in August right. 2020. 
And during that time, negotiations just don't occur. And I, a lot of that has to do with the Afghan government not talking to the Taliban right. in a manner that makes me believe that they actually believe the U.S. was going to leave. And I have a feeling that there were many Americans, including the U.S. military, who were telling the Afghan government from during this period of time, from February 2020 up until the Biden administration takes over, that don't worry, we're actually not going to leave. Trump's not going to be in office, we'll, we'll, et cetera. This is all driven by Trump. When we get you know, Biden in office, we'll work this out and we're not leaving. And because I, I, there's a real resistance by the Afghan government to negotiate. Um, you know, and, and Biden, yeah, I, I do give Biden credit that he did. Now, he's also right now he, he gotten hit with, uh, you know, when it rains, it pours. I mean, he, he with the supply chain issue, I yeah. mean, he declares back July 4th, about the same time that the U.S. military says we're 90 percent out of Afghanistan. And that's when the Taliban really start becoming victorious and start taking things over. You know, that's when Biden says, hey, Independence Day from covid. And then literally like a week or two later, yeah. you know, the hospitals are full again and people right. are dying in mass. Uh, right. I mean, so Biden really, you know, you, you put all this together and his political uh, and I'm not a Democrat. So, yeah. I mean, but I, I, you can I can understand the, the stress and the pressure that he is under. And I go back to Barack Obama's decision in 2009. What I know about it, what's been written about it. And so much of it was. Uh, and I think also to his escalation of the wars overseas, his, his uh, particularly the use of the, the targeted assassination, the drone warfare and the commando warfare um, is driven by that fear that if any if bomb goes off anywhere, right. they are going to say it's because you, Mr. President, are weak on terrorism, that you won't stand up to the radical Islamic, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. Uh, and I, I think that is what what keeps Obama, one of the reasons, I mean, there's many, I think, but I think that initially is what keeps him not only in Afghanistan, but escalates it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but I think sure. that is what, if you were, if we were to transport ourselves back to the fall of 2009 or any time of 2009, I think that is what you, you would hear uh, Rahm Emanuel or David Axelrod, you know, Obama's political people saying to him at the time. Right. Um, is just exactly what you said. This, this, you will be blamed if anything happens, and you're not fighting them overseas. Right, right, Mike. The, it's it's interesting that uh, majority of American people, despite the chaos of the withdrawal, still support the withdrawal from Afghanistan yeah, right. and have for some time, really. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you mentioned the military. Actually, if the military were were double talking to the Taliban, that is. That is nothing less than treason mm. for, for a senior military people to be back talking behind the presidents and the, and the State Department's back is, is just a, I mean, I'd like to see some of these people go and, and in front of a court martial, you know, uh, it's outrageous. The other thing is that, of course, after the British three invasions of uh, Afghanistan and the Russian and American fiasco in Vietnam, that, that, that nobody, I mean, I don't think that the United States military is that stupid. These senior generals are actually fairly well-educated people and they know history or they should know. And if they don't, they're just out straight up incompetent. But the fact that we had 20 years and they said, we're going to win this, we're going to win this, and we're going to win this. And then at, at the last, uh, the last bell, they said, well, we let's stay a little bit longer. We're, we, we're going to, we're going to pull this off. You know, it's, it's, uh, 
it's beyond sort of, a, uh, there is no accountability to the senior military are grotesque and incompetent hypocrites. Yeah, you know, and one of the things, Mike, that remember when Biden comes into office and in and, and Afghanistan is brought up and he says, um, uh, his, 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 he says, we can't we can't be out by May 1st. The military tells me that it's too difficult. It will take too much time and that evacuating this quickly will be dangerous. Um, so we can't be out for, for by May 1st. He says this in February or so after he takes office. May 1st comes along. He says we'll be out by September 11th. What happens? The U.S. military is out in two months. Right. And what they say is that speed is safety. You just told the commander in chief a few months ago, you couldn't do this this quickly. You just told the commander in chief that speed was dangerous. And now you did completely the opposite of that. The fact that what, what, what frightens me is that these generals, unless they do something like you just saw, people saw there was a, 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 a Navy ship, the Bonhomme Richard, I think it was, that uh, caught fire several couple of years ago or whenever, and massive amount. I, mean, ship, I think the ship had to be scuttled. I think. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so a cost of several billion dollars, and the, the uh, a whole list of admirals and officers are being punished for that. But you never see generals or admirals being punished for these wars. You know, for lying about these wars, for uh, even on a sense of just even if they weren't lying, just being incompetent. Right. How could how could excuse me, you lose these wars or the fact that, you know, Biden, they say to Biden, don't worry, it's, it's going to work out. We're going to pull out. It's going to be a, whatever, whatever they say, um, because if you go and you look at the, 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 the little bit of hearings that the Congress had on this a, a month or two ago, the statements from the Secretary of Defense and from Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Mark Milley, and from Frank McKenzie, who's the Central Command Commander, um, they're all very self-serving. They're all very, they're all CYA, right? They're all covering yeah. themselves, right? Protecting themselves. You know, I, I don't believe that that's what they told the president. And the fact that the president didn't fire anyone. And, and the thing is, though, Mike, and you're absolutely correct in bringing this up, that even as as as, as bad as it looked, as 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 uh, uh, you know, as as ugly as the retreat from Afghanistan was for the Americans, vast majority of Americans are still in support of it. So what you see in the public opinion is you'll see seventy to seventy-five percent of Americans saying Biden made the right made the right decision to leave Afghanistan. He just did it badly. Which again, this is what defeat looks like. I mean, you don't right. get to pick and choose how you lose. Uh, you know, I think what people should be asking though is that, wait a minute, hang on, for two decades now, we were fighting the Taliban, we were told we couldn't talk to them, told we couldn't trust them. Trump strikes a deal with them in February 2020, to, and the Taliban says, we will not attack any foreign forces. And they stick to that deal for 18 months. Right. When Ashraf Ghani flees Kabul and the city is open, the Taliban actually turn to the American military, the people they've been fighting for 20 years, and say, if you want to take control of Kabul, until you finish evacuating and we can stand an interim government up, that's fine with us, right? I mean, as the United States is retreating from, from, from Kabul, the Taliban is providing protection for American forces. They supposedly stop a couple suicide bomber attacks. Right. The last few days of the American presence in Kabul, the Taliban is providing almost all the security for the Americans at the airport. Right. How does that line up at all 
with anything we were told about the Taliban for the last 20 years. Yeah. Right. I mean, and the fact that these questions aren't asked, that it, it, it just means that. And, and people ask me, though, what's the le- where the lessons learned? And lessons learned were learned in the Obama administration. I mean, Afghanistan is just the last one to fall into line with it. And and um, uh, the uh, you know lesson is keep these wars hidden. Right. Don't mm-hmm. have large American involvement this way. You know, because you look at look at Bush. Bush has the Iraq war, uh, 160,000 American troops in Afghanistan uh, and a massive media coverage uh, of Barack Obama. Again, same thing to over 100,000 American troops, 100,000 NATO troops, 40,000, I mean, 100,000 contractors, 40,000 NATO troops, massive media coverage up until around 2012, 2013. When those troops are pulled out and when the American troops basically are uh, the conventional troops, not the special operations troops, the conventional troops are, com- are basically stuck on the bases, just training Afghan soldiers and nothing is really happening with them except for when an Afghan soldier kills them. Um, the media attention is gone. You know, so what you have is from 2013 up until this summer, um, about less, the, the, the American news networks were providing less than five minutes a year on the war in Afghanistan. And this is a war that the United States is spending $300 million a day in, that every year the war gets worse, the Taliban get bigger and stronger, thousands more people die every year, record numbers of people are killed every year, uh, and less than five minutes a year on the American news networks. You know, I think think that that, 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 that's a really important point. The only thing that the military learned from Vietnam or one of the few things that they learned from Vietnam is to mute the press. Don't leave them on. Don't let them on the battlefield. They were there on sort of embedded bullshit uh, reporting. And and you're absolutely right. The in Vietnam, actually, the Americans had a pretty close up and uh, personal look at at uh, uh, dead bodies. A lot of American dead bodies. That didn't really happen in Afghanistan, although there were plenty of dead bodies going around. The other thing, quickly, is that. For the boots on the ground, for the uh, not so much the our special forces mercenaries, the rangers, they're sort of off on a little on a planet of their own. They're, they've been oh, so overused that they're actually I don't know what's going to happen to these people. But there was a lot of discontent in the military about Afghanistan, and that, that the average soldier, in particular, when it, when it first came out that the there was no MD WMDs, but later going on this this grinder of a war has left a lot of American soldiers looking at looking in the mirror and says, this is bullshit. They, but they have been muted too. You know, they, they can't uh, uh, reasonably uh, stand up and be uh, counted because, uh, well, certainly the generals aren't. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the, 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 the general Petraeus writes his PhD thesis on um, lessons learned from Vietnam. And it's primarily focused on media. Um, and what you see is you see the, 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 the Pentagon, you know, saying, look, we don't need to view the press as the enemy. We can view them as a willing ally. And that's what happens. I mean, in the Bush administration, the press is so willfully co-opted. Yeah, embedding. Embedding. And all, I mean, it just it, I mean, it is it is it is brilliant what the Bush what the Bush administration does and the Obama administration keeps and and so on. I mean that's the that's the great that's one of the criticisms that comes of 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 of, of uh, uh, Trump's uh, Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, the former Marine Corps general, is that Mattis cuts a lot of access that the press was getting. 
that he's traveling without like a whole plane of reporters with him, like all his predecessors. You know, the, 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 the press is upset that they don't have this, you know, this access and all they are is acting as stenographers for the government. It's not like they're actually doing TV, right. I mean, so and if they did anything else, then they are denied access. Right. Then they are not allowed. I mean, and, and, and you know, I mean, you look in, look at the, what happens, you know, back in 2002, uh, 2003 with the Iraq war, with how media is. But then the media does it again uh, with the Afghan escalation in 09, 10. You know, I, 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 I was speaking out at that point and I was talking on the American uh, network saying, you know, I saw, I mean, uh, producers would print out the emails they would receive from the military that would say, if you want to talk to someone like Matthew Ho, you are not the kind of journalist that we want to talk to. And I can tell you that I had a ton of media of attention in 2009, 2010, that would not occur today, would not have occurred in 2014 or 2015 if I had done the same thing. Uh, I mean, and now even if you look at the um, uh, uh, look at the way the media handled the retreat from Afghanistan, there were very few uh, anti-war voices. And what ends up happening is that the anti-war voices that do get on, and there were some exceptions. I know Phyllis Bennis got on MSNBC, you know, I mean, you know, there are some exceptions. But for the most part, what you have are surrogates for the Biden administration arguing for the withdrawal to protect Biden, not arguing for the withdrawal because it was the right thing to do or because the war is wrong or it was right. futile or anything like that, but to, to protect Biden politically. Right. Uh, yeah. No, 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 no doubt about that. Um, so we have like five minutes or so left. Um, I want to get to what should people do now to help the people of Afghanistan? What should we do? Well, I mean, I think there's a number of things. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that many um, uh, uh, of the uh, relief networks that exist for, for migrants and refugees are local in terms of state organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so I would suggest that people look up and, you know, I know we're, we're on the air in, in Seattle. So people look up in Washington state the uh, relief organizations, the refugee organizations that work in Washington state and see what they can do. I mean, the money is always good, of course, but I have a feeling that a lot of these organizations need people, need people to volunteer, need mm. people to, to help these people as they show up in your communities, get them places, you know, get mm -hmm. them to wherever they need to go to get a driver's license. I mean, whatever it is that these folks are going to need. Um, so there's a lot of actual involvement that can occur. And I, I mean, I don't know how many refugees are going to Washington. There may be none. No, there's some. We have some in Seattle. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, I would, I would, you know, look and see, find those migrant, you know, refugee organizations and, and work with them. Uh, you know, I mean, as well, too, um, you need to be in contact with, with your members of, of Congress. Uh, you know, you can't let them as much as uh, uh, you have uh, Adam Smith, uh, who is the chair of the House Armed yeah. Services Committee, and he's, in, he's up there in Seattle. Uh, I mean, you can't, and as much as he is going to be tied to the defense industry, you cannot let them not hear your voice. Right. You cannot let them think that he may get primaried from the left at some point. 
You know what I mean? And I know he's, he, he presents himself as very progressive or, or whatever, but you have the only thing that these politicians are afraid of is punishment, is losing at the polls. Mm-hmm. And that will make them divorce themselves from the obligations of the campaign contributions that they have if they fear that an action of theirs is going to jeopardize their reelection. Right. And so that that needs to occur. Uh, you know, and then um, overseas, um, there's a, a few different uh, organizations that help with 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 with, with Afghans. Um, and um, I, I would suggest uh, looking at some of the United Nations programs like the World Food Program um, that are still still there. Um, you know, some organizations like Doctors Without Borders are going back in, um, you know, but I would uh I would specifically look at the United Nations programs because they seem to be the ones that are actually uh, working in Afghanistan right now, um, as many of these NGOs are trying to figure out what they're going to do next. Okay, great. Thank you uh, for yeah. those suggestions. Mike, you have some... Uh, UNESCO, is that, is that operating in Afghanistan uh, or is that... UNESCO? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. The World Food Program is the one I'm thinking of specifically right now. Um, and, um, as well as to, uh, IOM, the International Organization of Migration, um, you know, they, they, they're the ones responsible, but, um, you know, it, it's, I, I think the thing is right now, what you, what can you do to support those Afghan refugees who are showing up in Washington state, probably the, the most important thing, um, finding the organizations that are working with them, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, either with money or time or, you know, I mean, also, too, these, these are people who are showing up with literally nothing right. with a backpack. Right. And uh, they are going to need everything and they have no money. Um, so whatever whatever can be done to support them, I think it will be uh, a worthy, a worthy act. All right. Well, thank you, Matthew, for for coming on to the show. Um, before we close, Mike, do you have something else you I, want to I, ask? Or? Do you, do you, Matthew, do you have a, a, a blog or a, or a byline or something like that we can actually uh, tell our listeners? Yeah, about? yeah, sure. You can, um, I've got a blog. I, I update it once every couple months, just kind of uh, catalog stuff there. Uh, it's MatthewHo.com. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at Matthew P. Ho, P as in Patrick. So uh, uh, you can look me up on, on Twitter as well, if you like. All right. Well, thank you. You were actually very, very condensed. A lot of information in our uh, small amount of time here. Uh, I'm sure our, our listeners will appreciate it. Um, I certainly look forward to looking at some of your other stuff, too. Thanks, Mike. Thank I appreciate you. that. Yeah, and we need to have you back because there's a number of things to expound on, especially when it comes to the military in general. Yeah. And, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy um, and how can we as citizens uh, move us in a different direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. All right. Thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Matt. That's it for this episode of Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 radio show. The theme music is Untouchable, and the transition music to the interview is Spanish Winter, both by The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find his music at thepassionhi-fi.com. Now remember the show streams every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. 
That's kodxseattle.org. That's where you can go to find that. And you can find our past episodes of our show at kodxseattle.org slash seattlevfp. So thank you again to Matt Ho for participating in this episode of our show. You know, Matt served in Iraq and Afghanistan um, as a U.S. Marine. His insights are very valuable as we seek to understand events and what we can do to participate in history and not just let it happen to us. Of course, thanks to my host, Vietnam veteran, Mike Dietrich. And until the next time, power to the peaceful.